this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, being the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, for the first time in, what, four weeks, we've got PMQs unpacked. Post-party conference season, you would have expected some political knockabout. Inevitably, the events in Israel and Gaza dominate PMQs today. Tim Shipman, the chief political commentator of the Sunday Times, joins me to pause the action as Keir Starmer and Rishi Sinak present a pretty united front, it has to be said. And then Lara Spirit rounds up the best of the rest. And a little bit of politics creeping in, not least. Lisa Cameron, the former SNP MP, crossing the chamber to sit with the Conservatives after her defection. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, a little bit of light relief. We step away from matters in Israel for a moment. It's time for the comments. The Columnists on Times Radio. And we say hello to Times Columnist Robert Crampton. Hello, Robert Crampton. Hello, Matt. Uh, we don't have uh, the other half of Anna, but Alice Thompson's flight's been cancelled, so she's not with us. Yeah, I don't know where she's going, but she had to get another flight. She, yeah. Well, she was going to be on a plane, so yeah. she couldn't. I'm sure she would have tried her best to be here. But we've got John instead. <laughs> we've got John instead. Uh, John, uh, John Stevens, please go to the Daily Mirror. How are you, John? Very well. Good. Thank you, Matt. Fabulous. Right. Uh, let's talk about what's going on in Westminster, the culture of Westminster. This report came out yesterday, the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme, uh, which looks at, it was set up in 2018 after all the allegations against MPs. It's now, it's said uh, that alcohol remains a frequent factor in its investigations. Uh, alcohol consumption leading to intimidating behaviour like shouting and swearing. Uh, Daniel Greenberg, the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, uh, told me in the summer that he thought selling alcohol in the Parliamentary State should be kept under review. Let's take a listen. It is one of the things that clearly many members of Parliament are thinking about for themselves. I think the behaviour, I, I think the attitude to alcohol in the workplace has changed. throughout, As you say, throughout all workplaces, it has changed over the decades. When I joined the public service, about 35 years ago, it was common for wine to be served at internal lunches. It was it was it was a very common thing, and it doesn't generally happen today. So, John, you you're you're in Westminster more than Robert. Uh, Robert also doesn't drink, so I don't drink. No, there, you wouldn't be getting drunk and shouting. Oh, no, but I might have been in in a fairly recent past. Um, mm. Do you think? I mean, it feels to me actually like the culture has changed quite a lot in Westminster. Certainly, the time I've been there. Oh, definitely. I mean, I joined Westminster, the lobby, in 2014, so almost a decade ago. And as you say, things have progressively changed. And I think that the way that harassment claims are dealt with has definitely changed. I think there's now a culture where people feel they can speak up. But clearly you do have a problem in the same way as you do in any pub across the country that sometimes people have too much to drink. And the thing that slightly does annoy me with... All of these allegations that are ever made against MPs, when alcohol is used as some sort of excuse. Mm. So in the Chris Pincher case, he said, oh, I had too much to drink. And that was the defence from loads of Tories was, oh, well, he just had too much to drink. And even when you see the write-up of the investigation against him, it's all about how he drunkenly groped two men, as if that's somehow better than if he'd done it when he was sober. And I think that is pretty annoying. People just saying, well, they were drunk, oh, never mind. But also it's the implication that plenty of other people do go to, uh, and actually there were far fewer bars in Westminster than there were, mm. um, but they are capable of, lots of people are capable of going to the pub and having a drink with a colleague at the end of the day without assaulting anyone. <laughs> like, it, it doesn't alter, it's not that one thing automatically leads to the other. Yeah. I but, definitely think also... 
there's no clear solution to this. I mean, some people say, and I'm sure lots of your listeners around the country will be thinking, well, why on earth are there pubs in Parliament? Do MPs need to be drinking this slightly subsidised alcohol? Should we just shut them all down? I think that if you did that, you would just shift the problem. So you've got the red lion just over the road, just outside the security perimeter. If you shut down Strangers Bar, which is the main bar where MPs drink, they would just go to the Red Lion or potentially even worse, they would just shift it to their offices. And Mm -hmm. so then you see MPs having drinks parties in their offices, which they do already. You would see more of that. And if you've got an MP suddenly has a wandering hand in their office, Mm. that's much more difficult for a victim to be able to say, hang on a minute, that's too much. They might feel trapped in their office and there's less likely to be other witnesses around to say, no, that wasn't acceptable and I saw what happened. If you're looking for this from the outside, it all sounds mad, doesn't it, Robert? Uh, it does a bit. I mean, it's nothing that... I mean, journalism can't really get on its high horse about this too much, given yeah. the way that our culture was until recently. Uh, and I think I'm sure it's pretty similar in uh, the law, and I certainly know it is in the city. Uh, the thing about the... Uh, it's a much more closed environment, isn't it? And uh, you've got your particular uh, polarisation of kind of older, powerful men and yeah. younger, less powerful women. Uh in that environment, which makes it difficult. Uh, also, there's people that we would expect higher standards from, not not yeah. lower standards. Uh, but obviously, drink is it fuels uh, bad behaviour. It doesn't need to in everyone. To, to a completely great point. It's like when people were saying, "Oh, all men in the seventies were kind of behaving like you know uh, sex pests." Yeah. Well, my dad wasn't, and your dad wasn't. You yeah. know, and and most people weren't so you don't that's no excuse no excuse but yeah it does look a bit mad from the outside the whole the whole working conditions at parliament make it look like pretty pretty awful place to work and uh, I don't know whether that's true whether in the lobby I mean you guys have worked in the lobby I, I have once speaking actually to a government whip who it was a few years ago now who said that the the move to uh, family friendly hours mm. so they finished earlier actually caused other problems. It meant that the MPs sort of drifted yeah. away. Because, they, you know, the ones who set up their home and their family and their constituency, yeah. they're just sort of like in London at night. Yeah, you've got a, a bunch of end. men, mostly men, yeah. middle-aged men, sort of behaving like single men. Yeah. And, uh, and actually on, on the lash, on the lash in London. There's, there's, there's like the, yeah. there's the drinking inappropriate yeah. behaviour, there's a sort of bit, there's a big loneliness thing, you know, being away from their family, you know, but actually if you had to be in Parliament, you were right. voting and debates and all that. And also I guess it is the whole sort of atmosphere and the febrile atmosphere is, is a bit addictive, isn't it? Yeah. You want to hang around, you want to have a drink, you want to plot. And you've a big speech, or yeah, just you, being yeah. a big vote. There's adrenaline and, yeah. and all the rest of it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like those big nights when there's been some big vote you want to go on the terrace afterwards because there's just that kind of electric atmosphere sure. and you want to pick up gossip yeah. and i'm sure it's exactly the same for mps as it is for journalists yeah. um but yeah i suppose the other yeah the, the power dynamic as well between older you know this and the weird thing that mps don't aren't really employed by anyone which means their yeah. staff are... it's it's behind i mean this as i say this is but this was a problem in, in all the, the, the uh many workplaces in the fairly recent past but most of us i think have cleaned up our act and yeah. journalism certainly has and drinking culture in journalism is not what it was when i start when i started out yeah. 30 odd years ago uh and the mps are obviously a bit behind the curve but i think well, but I well think behind the curve <laughs> maybe but i think parliament has made a lot of progress mm-hmm. on the sexual harassment front but i mean you know what i think about this that <laughs> 
it, there's still much more to do. And I would rather that someone like Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, spent much more time on absolutely stamping this out rather than doing ridiculous photo opportunities mm. with dogs and cats at every opportunity. <laughs> I mean, Parliament in general is in need of a modernisation. Yeah. You know, the kind of looking at it, it looks a bit... Silly, to it's be honest. Gonna, it's also going to fall down. Yeah, the, the, the actual infrastructure, yeah. but the sort of men in tights, the shouting, the, uh, the, the all the kind of rah rah. Well, don't pub. get rid of all of that, and no, okay. it would just be. I mean, like the one in Scotland, and that's miserable. Fair point. <laughs> keep the tights. Get rid okay, of the sex the... harassment. Don't keep right. the tights. Don't, okay, don't, keep don't the tell tights. Tell Tommy he's got to stop wearing tights. <laughs> keep the tights. Keep the tights. Fine. But I mean, I suppose the other thing is this: this or this this uh, this scheme has only been in place for five years. Uh, the fact that they are that, that people are feel able to go to it, and there are then consequences. We've seen that again this week with. Uh, Peter Bone, that there has been an investigation into yeah. an MP and his behaviour, and he's going to be suspended. And you know, there's a sense of at least it's good, the system working. But we're still losing a lot of good MPs. Exactly. It was a lot of people, a lot of good MPs stepping down at the next election because yeah, they yeah. basically don't want to work. They don't want to be there. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what. Let's move on. Uh, what should we? Um, should we do jokes? Let's do jokes. Thirty-year-old <laughs> jokes. Richard Curtis was at yeah. the Times and the Sunday Times Charlton Literature Festival at the weekend. Talked about how he was stupid and wrong in many of his successful films because the way he wrote about women and made jokes about people's size. And he was talking yeah. about how uh, in, I think, Love Actually and Notting Hill, yeah. he'd written jokes he wouldn't write now. And so you've been examining your own old jokes. Well, yeah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't... I mean, respect to Curtis, he, he got up on stage at Cheltenham and he was interviewed by his own... basically given a hard time by his own daughter, which uh, I th- I, certainly I has happened. I did think... If he'd ever, his daughter's 28. asking your own daughter... No, his daughter's 28, mine's yeah. 24, so he's not pretty much the same. And yeah, I wouldn't want to unearth my... Uh, I wouldn't want Rachel to trawl through my back catalogue uh, in print. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it might be a little bit embarrassing. And then thinking about jokes, there's, yeah, there's jokes that she's already told me I can't tell, uh, things I can't say. And my son does as well, to be fair. Uh, and I was, I've got, you know, I, I don't know, I, some men, not men, not, not all men, but some men have got a little stock of jokes for certain occasions. I'm one of them. Seven or eight good, you know, real bankers jokes. Re- reading, reading yours. And I don't think three or four of them are just gone. I spent the whole time trying to work out what the joke was. Exactly, that's what it was a tease, wasn't it? Yeah. I can't tell them on the radio because they all involve expletives. The drunk in crab the joke line. is off, but the, uh, the gobby yeah. lobster joke is still permissible. Yeah, but that, you know, that everyone knows the gobby lobster joke, but does it work on the radio? I don't, I don't know if I do know that. Okay, lobster goes into a bar, uh, orders a pint, bar, barman says, no, go, you, not having you in here, not having you in here, and, and, and the, so the lobster walks out again, and then some other fellow goes, well, what was, what was wrong with that? He seemed all right. He says, yeah, but he has a few drinks, he starts giving it that. Oh, we see. It doesn't work on the radio, yeah. But he's, I'm doing a pincer thing. That, there, is, yeah. that is permissible. But what's yeah. the, you said there that you, you've got this little mini catalogue of jokes you wheel out of yes. opportunities and occasions. What are those occasions? <laughs> just like, I just don't like... Just so you can avoid them. at a bus stop and you just think, I, uh, let me entertain you. I, uh... Actually, I, uh... I told a... I told a joke in my German class, which I think we're going to talk about later. Talk about I, told a, I, I told a Mother Teresa joke in my German class. It's an excellent point, John. When is it? <laughs> what it is, is when conversation flags with other men, I think. If you don't, once you've done sport, you then move on to telling jokes. That has, if you tried sport with me, that you'd end the conversation. Yeah, I know. I'm it's talking a generational about, thing because I. I'm talking about middle-aged heterosexual men yeah. who, are, who talk about yeah, who generally spend four talk hours about, in a pub and go home. Yeah. And your wife says, "How are how old are they?" It's like I've got yeah. no idea. Yeah, 
Exactly. <laughs> I know you don't. You don't. You don't. You're not in sport. And you're not. In, obviously, no. it doesn't wouldn't work with you two. But uh, so we you do it. sport, and then so yeah, I'd probably if we went to the pub, we'd, well, we would talk about politics. But if we didn't, I'd probably talk about. I'd tell you some jokes. Yeah. <laughs> I. I and they guarantee to make you laugh. I'm going to stand up for your ice cream vendor joke. Yes, but it's a. It's a great joke, yeah. but it's a sort of suicide-related joke. You could actually... T- I thought you could twist it, couldn't you, to so make go, it... Do you want to tell it? Oh, yeah, there's a guy found dead at the bottom of his ice... and lying on the floor of his ice cream. He's covered in hundreds of thousands and, you know, chopped nuts and kind of, you know, raspberry syrup and chocolate flakes. Yeah, the police are saying he topped himself. <laughs> See, I think that's a... I think... Because part of the... Part of the laughter of it comes from knowing that it's a bit much but yeah the key thing is he doesn't exist you're not no. joking about a real no. person's death you could say it's a pub pe- you could say people police are saying somebody topped him uh okay. then it'd be a joke about murder rather than suicide <coughs> and is that <coughs> all right me. i wouldn't say homicides are any better than suicide no. but but it's just a pun isn't it yeah and it's the surprise and the awkwardness that makes you laugh rather than yeah yeah and the sort of kind of everydayness of it because we all and get wheeling out all the toppings that's I quite like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More. Really, yeah. really lean yeah. into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, laying it on thick, as it were. Um, what's the M1 motorway joke? That's too long, and it involves a swear word. Right. <laughs> and you've got uh, form for that. So we'll yes. for that. Yeah. Have you got any jokes at all, John? No. And I don't have a back catalogue of things I've written that I regret either. Yeah, but you're so much younger. I do really. Um, many <laughs> things I've written. Regret. Old lives. Yeah. Luckily, not jokes. Just. Um, yeah, other things. Um, I was going to... Well, the only joke that I can ever remember... Can I tell this? <laughs> yeah, I probably can. I've got... The, do you know the Jeremy Thorpe joke? No. no go on, can you tell No, no, one? no, it's slightly homophobic. Right, fine. It's not homophobic, but it's kind of... I was glad it, it, to be here for the last episode of your <laughs> show, Matt. It's so good. You've had such a good run. Can I do the why did the baker have brown hands? Oh, you tell me. I don't know. Because he needed a poo. Yeah. That's all right, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's a joke. That's yeah. the only one I can ever remember. Yeah. I think it's a good joke. Mm, Alex doesn't understand no. the joke about the baker. Oh, no, no, no. These are bad. I'm, looking, <laughs> I'm just looking at these on, on your feed here. Oh, this one's okay. Why don't prawns yeah. buy Christmas presents? Because they are shellfish. Thank you for that, Dan. Dan's so far the only person who's texting a joke. It's quite, probably quite a bad <laughs> idea to say. <laughs> can you send us jokes that you can't broadcast? Can you make cannibals? Can you make jokes about cannibals? They are, No... Oh dear! Hang on, uh, sorry, I'm reading the jokes now. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on because we're going to talk about learning. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. Which one? The cannibal one's okay. Two cannibals uh, eating a clown. One turns to the other and says, "Does this taste funny to you?" <laughs> <laughs> they have a bit of Christmas cracker, aren't yeah, they? That's a, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, why did the sesame seed not want to leave the casino? He was on a roll. Yeah, that's Christmas Come on, cracker. That's yeah. just Christmas, that's Christmas cracker. cracker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, that's not good enough. Right, uh, let's talk about uh, speaking foreign languages. In today's times, uh, there's a story that says, many British adults feel ashamed they cannot speak a foreign language. And there's strong support for compulsory teaching of languages until at least GCSE level, instead of allowing children to stop at the age 14. Uh, You can speak German. No, I can't speak German. I did German to what were called O-levels in my day, uh, 43 years ago, and... We had to. We uh, French, for us, French was compulsory. Uh, German wasn't, but I took German anyway. Yeah. And then, having really not spoken any it must German, have been controversial so- during the Second World War. 
Uh, very funny. That's, that's highly amusing. Yeah. Uh, although the second one, last time I made a made, last time I made a joke about Robert's age, you talked to F off on air. I was just seeing if I could go into that again. It was. Uh, it, it actually was probably it was closer to the Second World War than it is to <laughs> than that to me taking my own levels is to now. Yeah. So I guess there probably there were a lot of jokes about the Second World War. Certainly, anyway, I didn't do anything with my German, and then I decided to go and do a class. Yeah, at the City Lit, which is coincidental, and then coincident this story came up, and uh, yeah, I suppose I'm one of those people who is a little bit ashamed of my inability to can, speak. Can any, you speak anything foreign language? So I did. AS level Spanish, which Ooh. used to be like half an A level yeah. when that existed. I did an A level in French. Oh, but I think like, making people learn languages till GCSE, I think it is good that people have raw curriculum, rah, 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 but people aren't going to know that language. Mm. You know, I did French A level, I did all right at French A level. Mm. Right. I moved to Brussels where quite a few people speak French. I can't speak French. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's bring in somebody who can speak languages. Vicky mm-hmm. Goff is the school's advisor at the British Council. Um, what languages? Hi. What languages can you speak, Vicky? Um, I did German and Italian at university, and my Italian is still pretty good. My German's a bit rusty, and I also did A level French, and I have used it a bit for work. So my French uh, understanding's quite good. I did. F- I did French for a year at A level, then dropped it, but it was before it became an AS. So I just did. I did got nothing. Got for nothing it. for it, apart from a sort of vague. Confidence in a boulangerie. <laughs> <laughs> really? Marion baguette. Still do play. Yeah. Um, uh, Vicky, does it matter? I mean, for, if you force people to do it, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to enjoy doing it or want to do it or be any good at doing it and then keep up with it later in life. No, it doesn't mean that. But it's interesting from this um, report that you see a lot of adults do regret it because they think it would have made a difference to them. I mean, whether it would have made a difference to their career or the fact that when they go on holiday, they can interact with people. Um, or And I think it also makes a, a, um, a difference in development of other soft skills, like communication skills mm. and whatever. Because mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. Doing GCSE, you're not going to be fluent, but it's a stepping stone. And at the moment, only half the cohort at 16 do GCSE. So that's half uh, the kids stop learning languages at 14, which I think is a real shame. And I think it would be great if there were the resource and if there were the teachers for more kids to choose to do languages at, at GCSE. And, you know, the interesting thing is of the half the cohort that do do languages, they are the more disadvantaged and they're more likely to be girls. So there are oh, less boys and less disadvantaged people doing languages. And there's something quite, not quite right about that as well. Um, so what, if, if somebody is thinking about a language, with your sort of British Council hat on and looking around the world, what languages should we be learning? Is it worth um, learning German? Oh, I think it's definitely worth, worth learning German. I think it's a really important language for the economy, you know, because there are benefits to the individual for language learning, but also benefits for the country, for diplomacy and for the economy and so on. And, you know, our young people will be competing in the job in the global jobs market with people who come from other countries who have the same degree in business studies architecture or whatever but they also have english and their language and then probably another one as well so i think it's it's important that languages can be counted in that repertoire of skills that people have or at least opening uh, being open to learn about languages and the, the the thing that comes with that, which is learning about other cultures and being interested yeah. and open to other cultures. 
And maybe actually some of that comes from if you come from a better off family, maybe you travel a bit more, mm. you get used to the idea of using your language. But if you don't, um, you're not. Uh, yeah. I think it's just a good thing in itself as well. I mean, that's why yeah. I decided to do it as a more as an intellectual exercise as much as anything. Which and I think maybe is, that's the other thing is that we should approach uh, a lot more education like yeah. that. Just, just also, you learn you you. In as much as I know anything much about grammar, I, I know it from learning German <laughs> yeah, yeah. and French, because we weren't really taught yeah, gra yeah, yeah. English grammar at school, so I yeah. kind of know it back, you know, they sort of backwards as it were. Well, thanks for that, Vicky. Uh, Vicky Goff there from the British Council, who studied German at university. Thank you, John, for for coming in and not telling any jokes at all. We have got some jokes. <laughs> uh, these these are these are okay. These are okay. Uh, Switzerland hasn't got a lot going for it. On the other hand, its flag is a big plus. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, I was going to tell this one yesterday, I forgot, because we were talking about uh, uh, Disney. Uh, Jane says, what's the difference between Bing Crosby and Walt Disney? Bing sings, but Walt Disney. So you have to say that if you're Scottish. And uh, a man walks into a library and asks at the desk, can I have a burger and fries, please? The librarian says, excuse me, sir, this is a library. He says, oh, I'm sorry. Can I have a burger and fries, please? John Stevenson, The Daily Mirror, there, and of course, Robert Crown from The Times. You can read him every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is PMQ's Unpacked. you normally expect quite a lot of political knockabout, the fallout, the highs and the lows, your mistakes, your announcements, and so on. But clearly, the situation in Israel and Gaza is going to dominate. Yeah, I mean, Starmer has to go on that to start with. Um, the question, I guess, is whether he splits his questions and does three on that and then comes back um, halfway through uh, to, to do something else. Um, and, you know, this is an interesting situation because, in a sense, politics has changed a bit since we were last here. Um, Rishi Sunak's had a go at trying to reset his government. I think most people would agree not wholly successfully. Um, Keir Starmer has cleared another sort of hurdle on his way to Downing Street, but without really kind of totally sealing the deal. And there's just a little bit of nervousness in Labour that this is now a sort of curveball that's come from left field. Um and can sort of change the game a little bit. It changes the sort of um, the background noise um, and it creates, I think most people would agree, slightly more problems for the left than for the right in terms of how you calibrate support for Israel and criticism where it then becomes warranted. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how Starmer approaches it. it. You know, up front, he can kind of do what he's done repeatedly since he took over, which is, you know, distinguish himself from Jeremy Corbyn and, and what went before. But um, as this goes on week by week, um, there could be a, a, a whole bunch of incidents and the hospital might have proved to be one of them, though it's now looking uh, less likely that that's the case, where, you know, um, 
support for Israel then becomes a political issue. Um, so, you know, let's see how he handles it. But it's it's certainly not what he would have wanted coming back from conferences, and he would have wanted to take the mickey out of the prime minister. I suppose actually, in, you know, this is this is talking about the politics when when clearly there's far more important things being played out in Israel and Gaza right now, but. Keir Starmer actually using this as a way to draw a line under under the the Corbyn days, appearing prime ministerial, aligning himself with the government, making serious uh, statesman-like statements is no bad thing for a guy who hasn't quite yet crossed that that threshold in some people's minds. No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, but as I say, it comes with slightly more peril for a Labour leader than it does for a Tory one because there's a lot of people behind him whose instincts, even if they've been keeping their mouths shut um, in recent days, would be that they are supportive of the Palestinians and um, uh, that makes it sort of slightly more perilous terrain. But in terms of speaking to the country, I think um, for the most part, Starmer was on reasonably uh, solid ground, certainly at this stage of proceedings, in taking um, a pretty firm line and, and saying Israel has the right to defend itself. But um, it's it's certainly uh, going to be, um, uh, you know, not the PMQs we thought we were going to get, but in its own way, I think, will be um, uh, equally fascinating. And it also happens, you know, it happens the day before two major by-elections, uh, and normally you'd expect people asking questions about that to leave the party leaders the opportunity to set out those their stalls. Now, we'll, we'll bring you Keir Starmer's first question in just a moment, but um, as often happens with uh, on a big day like this, it's worth bringing you just the Prime Minister's opening statement in, in response to the very first question, just to just sort of get the sense of uh, his message to the Commons this morning. This is Rishi Sunak. Mr Speaker, I know the whole House will have been shocked by the scenes at Al Ahli Hospital. As my honourable friend, the Foreign Secretary, has said, we are working independently and with our allies to find out what has happened. I'm sure that honourable members will be raising further questions with me during today's session. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others in addition to my duties in this House. I shall have further such meetings later today. And it's interesting because James Cleverley, as you were saying, the Foreign Secretary has already been out this morning just saying we just need to take a step back, take a deep breath and wait for the evidence. Because I think, yet, you know, last night we had very senior politicians rushing out to say there is no justification for this without actually knowing who was responsible for it. No, and both sides are blaming the other. Um, and But there are ways of kind of working this out. And I think uh, other, you know, it's not just politicians that have made a holics of it. Some other media organisations have done too um, by jumping in with both feet and, you know, fact-checking uh, outlets that seem not to have a grip on the facts um, have also been parading things around this morning on other channels. Um, so it's, it's good to wait. Um, and interesting as well that Sunak said, you know, we are checking independently. We're not just going to rely on what we're told by yeah. the two uh, sides of this. Um, so you've had... You know, so, Israel are our allies, but you know there are independent ways that you know both the British and the Americans, in particular, will have of uh, kind of uh, verifying what's happened in due course. But these things often take a bit of time. Um, it's a very small issue, this, but I would just point out that on the uh, the BBC News Channel, they are currently spelling Keir Starmer's name wrong in all the captions. But well, we more fact checking, more fact checking the needed. BBC, more fact checking needed on that. Uh, yeah, so basically, what happened this morning is that, that uh, James Clever, the uh, the Foreign Secretary, said last night too many people jumped to conclusions about the tragic loss of life 
at uh, Al Ali Hospital. Getting this wrong would put even more lives at risk. Wait for the facts, report them clearly and accurately. Cool heads must prevail. And this is a lesson in all these situations. Yeah. I mean, we've seen it before with a lot of terrorist atrocities or whatever, that a lot of stuff flies around on social media um, and assumptions are made and, and the truth is often, um, uh, you know, barely got its boots on before. Yeah. Um, but then you've got the US president goes and says it was the other team. Uh, yeah, well, like. I mean, I'm not sure that uh, that terminology will particularly enhance his uh, re-election efforts, um, uh, but there we go. Right, here we go then. Let's, uh, this is PMQ's Unpacked. Uh, we go live to the House of Commons. This is Labour leader Keir Starmer. Position Keir Starmer. Yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I start by warmly welcoming the new member for Rutherglen and Hamilton West? Yeah. This was the by-election win from last week. Mr Speaker, the news last night of hundreds killed at the Baptist Hospital in Gaza is incredibly distressing, but it's much worse for the people of Gaza. Their fear that there's no place of safety is profound. International law must be upheld, and that means hospitals and civilian lives must be protected. Last night, the Foreign Secretary said the UK will work with our allies to find out what has happened. I know this only happened last night, but can the Prime Minister please tell us when he thinks he might be able to update the House on progress with that work? Oh, I, uh, I know the whole House will have been shocked by the scenes at uh, Al Ali Hospital. Any loss of innocent life is a dreadful tragedy. And everyone will be thinking, both of those who have lost their lives and the families that they leave behind. We should not rush to judgment before we have all the facts on this awful situation. Every member will know that the words we say here have an impact beyond this House. This morning, I met with the National Security Advisor, but also the Chair of the Joint Intelligence Committee. I could tell the Honourable Gentleman our intelligence services have been rapidly analysing the evidence to independently establish the facts. Uh, we are not in a position at this point to say more than that, but I can tell him we are working at pace, but also cooperating and collaborating with our allies on this issue as we look to get to the bottom of the situation, and we will also continue all our efforts to get humanitarian aid into the region. That probably sets the tone for uh, the rest of PMQs, particularly Rishi Sunak, conscious of the risk of a misstep. And so actually saying nothing is probably better at this point. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's uh, certainly the safest position for the government. It's sort of interesting that, um, uh, you know, the hospital has now overtaken any sort of discussion of the issue in the round mm. and what happened, you know, the weekend before. Um uh, and Starmer very much, you know, putting his old um, legal hat on and talking about, you know, international law needing to be upheld. That sort of puts it back in his um, natural uh, political bailiwick. Um, and Sunak as well there, sort of, I think that's more frank than you normally get from a Prime Minister about who he's been talking to. Mm. I, I don't rem- remember, apart from at the sort of height of the Iraq war when it became, you know, basically the entire story for a while, um, people talking about, oh, I've just had a meeting with the chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee. I mean, we all know these meetings go on and if there's a National Security Council meeting that uh, the uh, chairman of the JIT would be there. But, um, you know, that shows, uh, you know, how seriously he's taking it and also, you know, wanting to to make clear that, you know, we're running our own sort of independent intelligence process. So, um, pretty sombre start. Um, 
let's see what happens next. Yeah, absolutely right. Let's go back to the House of Commons. And this is question number two from Keir Starmer. <coughs> I thank the Prime Minister for his answer. The terrible news last night came as we are still mourning the terrorist attack on Israel last week. Jews taken hostage, mutilated, slaughtered. And yesterday I met the families of some of the British hostages held by Hamas. Every minute of every hour of every day, they hope for good news, but fear the worst. They know the lives of their loved ones are in the hands of murderers. It's unimaginable agony. Israel has a right, a duty, to defend itself from Hamas, keep its people safe and bring hostages home. But isn't it clear that if Hamas had a single concern for human life, a single concern for the safety of the Palestinian people, then they would never have taken these hostages and they should release them immediately. Well, Mr Speaker, it is important consistently for us to remember that Israel has suffered a shockingly brutal terrorist attack and it is Hamas and Hamas alone that is responsible for this conflict. Uh, Our thoughts are rightly with those who have been taken hostage and their families. The distress they are feeling will be unimaginable uh, for all those affected. Uh, I will be meeting with some of the families and offering them all the support of the British government to get their relatives home. We are working around the clock with our partners and allies to secure their freedom. And importantly, in amongst my other regional calls, I spoke specifically with the Emir of Qatar yesterday on this very issue, which we discussed at length. The Qatari government is taking a lead and working intensely to help release hostages using their contacts in the region, and we are working very closely with them to ensure the safe return of the British hostages. Um it's interesting there where, because uh, you, you said that they, that they hadn't referred back to the the event which started all this, what, a week and a half ago now, the uh, the Hamas uh, terror attack in Israel. He said that Hamas and Hamas alone is responsible for this conflict. Yeah, I think if, you know, 48 hours ago, that would have been Starmer's opening question mm. and statement. Um, uh, and he was right to pivot to the hospital. Um but clearly that's the sort of strong message that he wanted to get across there. Um, and I think the language was very evocative, mm. um, talking about people you know, mutilated and slaughtered. And I think that phrase, unimaginable agony, is a good one from Starmer. He kind of... Um, the criticism of Jeremy Corbyn was not just that he had things politically wrong a lot of the time, but that when it came to anti-Semitism, that he had no empathy for people who were suffering and felt that they were, uh, you know, marginalised and attacked. And I think a lot of people who knew Corbyn sort of said he, he couldn't really comprehend why, all, you know, um, the Jewish people were sort of victims. In his mind, they were wealthy and, you know, white, a lot of them, and not sort of yeah, yeah. traditionally what he would see as the sort of victims of society. Starmer really doing his best to show we understand what you're feeling here. Yeah. He's got a lot of people in his party who would have talked to him about that. And, in, you know, he's got a seat in North London and he knows um, those communities. Yeah. Um, the other thing I thought was obviously interesting is that Starmer's seen the families of the hostages before b- before the Prime Minister. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is, um, you know, a little bit of a coup. And I think Starmer did a very good job of, uh, you know, Sunak kind of repeated some of the phrases and, uh, you know, I mean... Uh, 
he's the Prime Minister. But, so, I mean, but, I mean, but Starmer the sounded... Starmer asking the questions and Sunak answering, but it does feel like Starmer's sort of setting, yeah. taking the lead on I this. think he sounded every bit like a Prime Minister in the questions he asked. Um, and when... You, so, Rishi Sunak was talking about making regional calls. There were some suggestions last night that Rishi Sunak might go to Israel at some point. Do you Have you heard any more about that? Uh, I would be surprised if he's not there before the end of the week. Um, yeah. But, um, I mean... Uh, I think for security reasons, people would prefer it if we didn't say anything more than that. But um, my understanding is that that is very likely. But there's an interesting question about what impact that might have, given that he'd be the first British Prime Minister to go for almost a decade. David Cameron was the last one in 2014, and partly because for the last decade, British policy has been completely obsessed with itself and hasn't necessarily engaged in the world in the way that you might like. But, you know, bluntly, Rishi Sunak bowling up in Israel now to talk to Benjamin Netanyahu. What impact is that going to make? Well... I think when James Cleverly went last week, he went at the invitation of the Israelis who were keen to have um, support that on the That was the immediate ground. aftermath of the yeah. terror attack, yeah. Um, look, uh, the American president is there. Um, there's a lot going on here, and Britain has some role to play in kind of some of these regional um, uh, conversations about what happens next. We've got long-standing links, not all of them positive, it should be said, to the region. Mm. Um, but but the Middle East is an area where Britain does have quite a good diplomatic network, does have um, quite a good intelligence network. Um, and, you know, there's we can encourage things, you know, in the direction that we want to see. I think what people who work for Sunak would say is that, you know, while his public performances are a little bit erratic and we don't always think that he captures the tone or gets gets it completely right um, in his speeches or in PMQs. Behind the scenes, he's quite effective. He likes to do meetings one-on-one -on -one with other leaders, genuinely one-on-one, -on -one, not with, you know, a phalanx of aides on each side. Yeah. And he feels he gets somewhere with those conversations. Um, and Britain obviously has interests in the area. It's not just about supporting an ally. It's mm. about trying to sort out what happens with our hostages. And we do have hostages there. That we, you know, we are part of that conversation. Um, and he will want to be able to go yeah. and sit in a room with Benjamin Netanyahu and you have a, have a blunt conversation about that. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it is... Yeah, is, if he does go, he, he can uh, play a role, and that's probably a good thing. The, the fact that, you know, would have been better if he, he had also been two weeks ago or two months ago is a sort of uh, a, a separate point. But let's go back to the House of Commons now. Let us know how you think uh, this is unfolding. Go on to, uh, to the Times Radio YouTube channel. Lo love to see your comments. Uh, let's go back to the House of Commons and kiss Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yesterday, I also met charities with staff working in Gaza and heard their accounts of the harrowing humanitarian crisis. Children fleeing their homes, hospitals barely able to function. The lights are going out, and the innocent civilians of Gaza are terrified that they will die in the darkness, out of sight. International law must always be followed. Hamas are not the Palestinian people, and the Palestinian people are not Hamas. Does he agree that medicines, food, fuel and water must get into Gaza immediately? This is an urgent situation and innocent Palestinians need to know that the world is not just simply watching but acting to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe. Mr Speaker, as I said on Monday, an acute humanitarian crisis 
is unfolding to which we must respond. It is right that we support the Palestinian people because they are victims of Hamas yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is why we have provided a further £10 million in humanitarian aid for people in the region. And we are working through preemptively moving aid and relief teams to Egypt, specifically to the El Arish airfield. We are working with local partners like the Egyptian Red Crescent and the United Nations primarily, and deploying Navy assets to the region, as well as exploring how we can support logistical requirements. And I've also raised this issue of humanitarian access in all of my conversations as a priority with every leader in the region and we will continue working with them to get aid to where it is needed as quickly as possible. I suppose actually that is an example of something that he might be able to bring some pressure yep. to bear on, uh, on trying to get some humanitarian aid in. And if we're marking these answers, a better answer there from Sunak, who was able to show, here are some specific things I've done. And actually, quite an, you know, right up front, the British government decided not to cut aid. Um, others, uh, even in Europe, were pulling aid um, once the attacks first took place um, as a kind of punishment uh, measure and um, Sunak and his Foreign Affairs advisor John Bew decided very early on that that was a bad idea um, and that um, you know this was going to be needed regardless of the rights and wrongs of everything else that was going on. Um, but again, you know, Starmer, poignant language there, people dying in the darkness. Yeah, um, yeah. I was with some senior people from Starmer's office at an event last night and they're clearly, you know, very, very concerned about what's going to happen over there. Um, people were talking about, you know, uh, power being turned off and hospitals running out of um, electricity and, and, you know, I think the way that this hits uh, anyone who's got kids is, is talk of children and babies, um, uh, you know, I think that's... Uh... This is a very different Keir Starmer, actually. The, 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 like you said, talking about uh, the lights are going out, civilians are terrified, they will die in the dark. Now, the language he's using, the way he's delivering it, is very different to his usual style. Yes. Um... And probably all the better for it. Um, we should just say, uh, we've heard from the Metropolitan Police in the last uh, few minutes about a vigil... Uh, for the victims of the hospital uh, bombing that took place last night. It's due to take place in Whitehall today at five o'clock. It's been organised by some left-wing groups. Uh, um, lots of the usual uh, left-wing groups that organise these things. The Metropolitan Police have said they're aware of it taking place. They're going to have additional officers deployed to the area to ensure it takes place safely. Uh, and uh, they're working with the event organised to ensure it passes without issues. It's anticipated there may be some disruption to traffic. And he's urged other people thinking of organising events to speak to the police first uh, to, to minimise any disruption, but clearly concerned that, as some of the other protests we've seen um, in London over the last uh, 10 days or so, a lot of nervousness about that taking place basically right outside, uh, right outside Downing Yeah, Street. these are all potential flashpoints. Um, this is, you know, serious stuff and it's um, emotive stuff um, and it's already an issue that probably um, winds people up on both sides yeah, pretty absolutely. much more than any other. But Chris has just been in touch from Sheffield. says, forgive me if I'm wrong, but not long ago, Starmer was cheering his gaffer, Corbyn, to the rafters. Corbyn was the Hamas apologist. I mean, it doesn't feel like that's where Wishy Sunak is going to go today. But that is a point they've pointed out lots of times before, that Keir Starmer sat in the uh, shadow cabinet of Jeremy Corbyn, who called Hamas friends, uh, and all those other things. This is, this is you know, and this will still... You know, we've someone sometimes taken a Mickey out of the Tories for for constantly labouring this point, but it is one that I know a lot of people out there 
do care about. And Starmer was asked about it. You know, his party conference was largely um, a success story that went off without incident. Uh, the one time he looked really uncomfortable was when he was being interviewed, um, I think it was by Sky News, and they asked him about this and said, well, you didn't resign, and the other people who you're hailing on your front bench, Rachel Reeves, um, was Streeting, people like that, they refused to serve. Um, Starmer, obviously... Um, you know, was not did not see the world the same way Jeremy Corbyn did, but he twice um, suggested yeah. that you know, he become prime minister. Now, you know, I think the way he responds to this series of incidents is going to be far more important uh, in terms of um, what people take away from what Starmer thinks about all of this than than what went before. But um, for some people, that is something they can't get past that he was prepared to sit. Uh, alongside Jeremy Corbyn. I think, you know, the cynical political journalist in me would say that Starmer's plan was always to try and win the leadership and that the only way he was yeah. going to do that was going yeah, yeah. to be to get enough votes from the people who supported Corbyn uh, and then to move the party in the direction that he wanted to. Um, now, that may be cynical for people on the right of the Labour Party and it may be distressing and cynical for people on the left of the Labour Party, but, you know... Bluntly, that's what it was all about. Um, and, you know, did he say enough about anti-Semitism when he was in the shadow cabinet? I think most people yeah, yeah, yeah. who campaign on the issue would say, no, he didn't. But the first thing he did when he became leader was to deal with it. So, you know... Well, let's go back. So that's slightly, politics. Slightly conscious of the time. Let's go back. This is question number four from Keir Starmer in, uh, in the House of Commons. Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As has already been alluded to, since Hamas's terrorist attack, our country has seen a disgusting rise in anti-Semitism. Jewish businesses attacked, Jewish schools marked with red paint, and Jewish families hiding who they are. And we've seen an appalling surge in Islamophobia, racist graffiti, mosques forced to ramp up security, British Muslims and Palestinians spoken to as if they were terrorists. Does he agree with me that every member of this House has a duty, a duty, to work in their constituency and across the country to say no to this hate and to ensure every British Jew and every British Muslim knows that they can live their life free from fear and free from discrimination here in their own country. Mr Speaker, all of us in this House can play our part in stamping out those who seek to cause division and hate in our society. Uh, we will make sure that we continue funding, as I said, the Community Security Trust, uh, but also the equivalent protective security grant to protect mosques and other places of worship for the Islamic community in the UK. That funding was increased earlier this year. We will also remain in dialogue with the police to make sure that they are aware of the full tools at their disposal to arrest those who perpetrate hate crimes, incite racial or other religious violence. There is no place for that in our society, and I know this House will stand united in making sure that those who do this face the full force of the law. Well, there we are. The conversation now moving on to anti-Semitism in the UK, which is the conversation we were just having. Um, a few people have messaged to say, did Jeremy Corbyn actually call Hamas and Hezbollah friends? He did. It was at a, an event in 2009... Uh, where uh, he was addressing um, a group of people in Parliament. Uh, uh, he was then asked later if he still regarded them as friends, and he said, no, it was inclusive language I used, which with hindsight I would rather not have used. I regret using those words, of course. That was what uh, Jeremy Corbyn said in 2016. So in the interest of um, uh, trying to make sure we get all the questions in, let's go back and have question number five from Keir Starmer. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. We do not want this conflict to harm us here at home, and we do not want it to escalate in the Middle East, where there has been too much bloodshed, too much darkness for too long. A two-state solution, a Palestinian state alongside a safe and secure Israel, feels more distant than ever, but it remains the only way through. Does the Prime Minister agree that because hope is at its thinnest, we must work our hardest to ensure the voices of division and despair are sidelined and that, however difficult it seems, the hope of a political path to peace is maintained? Mr Speaker, it is precisely because it is that vision of a more hopeful, peaceful future that Hamas tried to destroy that we must redouble our efforts to try and bring that future about. And all our conversations that both myself and the Foreign Secretary have had with regional leaders, we've emphasised our commitment to making sure that we make progress on all the avenues that will lead towards that peaceful future. Uh, and that has been a feature of both mine and the Foreign Secretary's dialogue. And I'm confident that there is willingness in the region not to escalate this crisis beyond dealing with Hamas, the terrorist organisation, but also to strive very hard to a future where Palestinians and Israelis can coexist peacefully side by side and look forward to a future filled with dignity, security and prosperity. Again, emotive, you know, smart writing from uh, whoever's helped Keir Starmer write these questions. When hope is at its thinnest, we must work our hardest. Yeah, and an interesting answer from Sunak there. I think that is, it's not quite news news, but, um, you know, the fact that he's been getting a positive response in his conversations with these other leaders about not letting this spread wider, mm. because certainly in the, the 48 hours after the uh, initial attack, that was what uh, people in Number 10 were most concerned about, that um, somehow, you know, Hezbollah in Lebanon would get dragged in and um, you'd then see, you know, other parts of... Um, uh, the Arab world sucked into some kind of confrontation and it seems that there is an appetite not to do that and that for the sort of strategic peace of the world is, is, is good news. But yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you know, Starmer has, has done, he's done the hospital, he's defended Israel, he's done the aid issue, he's done anti-Semitism with a shout out for the Muslim community at home and now he's talking about, you know, the regional sort of strategy and, and power and structures the and, and yeah, the geopolitics yeah. of it. This is... So far, um, excellent stuff. And in fact, uh, Catherine's been in touch, and this looks like the House and our representatives at their best, heartening. And I suppose, yeah, you're right, it's a good point, Catherine, but it's, it's, it's also slightly depressing that sometimes it requires a really, really awful international incident for that to happen. Uh, let's go back to the House of Commons, and this is uh, just rounding off PMQs and facts. Matt Shorty's still joined by uh, Tim Shipman, uh, Sunday Times Chief Political Commentator, but live on Times Radio and on the Times Radio YouTube channel. Uh, and this is the final question from Keir Starmer. This is a crisis where lives hang in the balance and where the enemies of peace and democracy would like nothing more than for us to become divided and to abandon our values. Does the Prime Minister agree that during this grave crisis, this House must strive to speak with one voice in condemnation of terror, in support of Israel's right to self-defence and for the dignity of all human life? that cannot be protected without humanitarian access to those suffering in Gaza and the constant maintenance of the rule of international law. Yeah. 
Mr Speaker, I agree. We will in this House speak with one voice in condemning Hamas for perpetrating a shockingly brutal terrorist attack and causing untold suffering on many. And as the Honourable Gentleman said, we stand united in supporting Israel's right to defend itself, to protect its people and to act against terrorism. Unlike Hamas, the Israeli President has made it very clear that their armed forces will operate in accordance with international law and we will continue to urge the Israelis to take every precaution to avoid harming civilians, whilst remembering, importantly in this House, that it is Hamas that is cruelly embedding itself in civilian populations. And the Carter. So that brings us to the end of those uh, exchanges. I mean, a united front, but a very British position. You know, uh, lives are in the balance, says Keir Starmer. Israel has a right to self-defence. Uh, that there must be humanitarian access and abiding by the rule of international law. That is a, a united British position over what is happening in the region. I think that's right. Um, and the sum total effect of those six questions, if you do it well as the opposition, you can set the agenda. And effectively there, Keir Starmer said, this is what our policy should be. And Rishi Sunak said, I agree. Mm. Um and the thing it put today puts me in mind of most is when David Cameron had to come to the House to answer uh, the Bloody Sunday Inquiry report, which was a devastating kind of insight into, you know, things that we had got wrong as a country. It was very difficult terrain. There were strong feelings on both sides. And I think people who watched him that day think he chose the right words and somehow navigated his way through it. And it was one of his finest moments as Prime Minister. And um, I've been pretty critical of Keir Starmer um, a lot of the time in these shows. I think he got that absolutely bang on today. That was his best performance. And, um, you know, in a sense, it sounded a little bit like he was the PM and the other bloke was just uh, saying, I agree with Nick. It is, uh, and I think you're, you're completely right. We have, at various points, been critical of the, the approach that uh, Keir Starmer has taken, whether or not things necessarily land, or the tone, or the questions, or, or whatever. But overwhelmingly, the reaction we've had from uh, from listeners as well has been, uh, well, probably uh, David says, Starmer definitely sounded like a statesman, not just a domestic leader. Uh, and uh, But, uh, yeah, I suspect we may well look back on that as a sort of turning point. Actually, but, Rishi Sunak sounded probably more Prime Minister than he often does at, at PMQs as well. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. A very good afternoon. She's Matt Chorley on Times Radio and on the Times Radio YouTube channel bringing you PMQs Unpacked. We've already had the main exchange between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak. Lara Spirit, Red Box editor, is here. She was watching the best of the rest. Overall, was it all Israel? The vast, vast majority of questions were Israel. I'd say maybe nearly a third were unrelated, uh, if that, but a very serious tone in, in the House and I think not a situation where you would see that many MPs going for kind of inter-party jibes yeah. at one another. So uh, where are we going first? So we're going to Saji Javid uh, first, who um, asked an interesting and important question about uh, whether or not the visas of foreign nationals that commit acts of anti-Semitism or other hate crimes could be revoked. Uh, and Rishi Sunak's response, I think, very interesting on this question. Mr Speaker, I'm proud to live in the most successful multiracial democracy in the world. But it does, uh, it saddens me, and I think it shames this whole house, that British Jews have been subject to such vile abuse and hatred in recent days. Anti-Semitism and all hate crimes they fly in the face of British values. And we should not allow 
events abroad, no matter how horrific they are, to be used to sow seeds of division in our own country. So whilst I welcome all the actions that my right honourable friend is taking to, to fight hate crime, to bring people together, may I uh, ask him to consider urgently an immediate and specific policy of revoking the visas of any foreign national that commits an act of anti-Semitism or any other hate crime. Mr Speaker, I completely agree with my right honourable friend who himself has done so much over the years to fight anti-Semitism. The increase in incidents we've seen over the past week is utterly sickening. And this government will do whatever it takes to keep our Jewish community safe. That's why we've provided an additional £3 million of funding to support the Community Security Trust, and we are working with the police to ensure that hate crime and the glorification of terror is met with the full force of the law. Under our existing immigration rules, we do have the power to cancel a person's presence in the UK if it is not conducive to the public good. Mr Speaker, we will not tolerate this hatred, not in our country, not in this century. It was noticeable that uh, Svella Bum, the Home Secretary, was nodding along to uh, to what, um, obviously, is a former Home Secretary, um, Sajid Javi was saying. Of course, and I think the focus uh, of Suella Braverman and colleagues so far has been on trying to make police aware of the powers that they have in the case of protests uh, and of uh, in, in the instances of active anti-Semitism and, and other hate crimes. I think this uh, this is an issue that goes beyond that. It is talking about the uh, you know poss- the revoking of visas uh, for those who engage uh, in these acts, and I think moves the discussion uh, even further on from from that point, and will certainly be the focus of other politicians in coming days. Uh, we should uh, say that what, there was some politics right at the very beginning of PMQs today with the arrival of Lisa Cameron, the former SNP MP, who has defected the Tories, entered the Commons and took a seat, uh, seemed to be sitting right next to Theresa May. Uh, um, and uh, that was just during the Welsh Welsh questions just before PMQs uh, got underway. What else, have, what else have you got for us, like? So, second question uh, is Stephen Flynn, uh, who is, of course, the SNP's uh, Westminster leader. Uh, We'll go to his second question. His first asked if Rishi Sunak would back uh, a ceasefire, uh, which Rishi Sunak declined to do, saying he he supported Israel's right to defend itself. But this question focuses uh, on whether or not uh, in in the days and months ahead, uh, Rishi Sunak might contemplate a resettlement scheme for refugees, similar to those that we've seen uh, for Afghan refugees and obviously most recently Ukrainians. Mr Speaker, my ask for a ceasefire is done with all sincerity, sincerity to protect civilians, but also to ensure that we have the safe creation of humanitarian corridors, humanitarian corridors which will allow for food, for water and for vital medicines to get into Gaza, but also for innocent civilians caught up in this terrible conflict to flee. In respect of those who wish to flee, can I ask the Prime Minister what early consideration, if any, his government has given to the creation of a refugee resettlement scheme akin to that previously put in place for Syrian nationals, Afghani nationals and, of course, Ukrainian nationals? Mr Speaker, I'm proud that we are already one of the most significant contributors to the United Nations efforts to support Palestinian refugees and our funding supports around 5.8 million refugees annually and 
on Monday we announced a significant increase in our funding uh, to, of aid to the region, including to the UN to support refugees. Uh, with regard to humanitarian aid, as I said before, we are already working through preemptively moving aid and relief teams into the region, but critically the most important thing is to open up access for that aid to get into Gaza, which is why our conversations with the Egyptians and others are so critical. We continue to work closely with allies to find every way to get that aid to the people who need it as quickly as possible. Stephen Crabb. Yeah, all, all very similar uh, sombre somber stuff in, the, in PMQ's today, Laura. Yeah, very much so, I think, um, you know, divided between focusing on, uh, you know, the humanitarian response in Gaza, uh, Rishi Sunak on numerous occasions making clear that uh, it is it is their utmost concern and that they are working closely to see if there's something they can do uh, both to try and open the Rafa crossing but also to try and get that aid that they have recently increased uh, into uh, the areas affected. Uh, and then also, uh, of course, on uh, the broader picture of Israel's right to defend itself uh, on which Rusunak has been uh, very clear, but certainly that has been the focus of questions today, you're right. And another potential way there that this could have some kind of domestic political impact um, if, if the let's set up a settlement scheme becomes the sort of way that people choose to take the, the domestic debate, yeah. that then obviously has some, you know, implications for the government and immigration and all, all that kind of debate. Again. And uh, Humza Yousaf was making that point in his party comment speech yesterday. That, you know, that was what he was calling for, was a big resettlement scheme. Yeah. It's not his gift, but that was his that was his uh, appeal, if you like, to the Westminster government. Uh, just in terms of the policies there, we'll just we'll step back in a moment. We're keeping an eye on James Cleverley. He is making a statement to the House of Commons uh, in response to an urgent question, but we have already... His line this morning seems to be, let's wait and see. We're trying to get to a definitive conclusion. Uh, I think we've got this out. This is the moment that Lisa Cameron, the SNP MP, uh, crossed the floor uh, and formally in the House of Commons defected the Conservatives. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. And Mr. Speaker. Can I can I just say can I just say to the members, the member was in the middle of asking a question. I think it's disrespectful to your own side. You should think about what you're doing. And can I just say, people should wait. Just because you want to cheer somebody coming in, do it at the right time. Totally inappropriate. Come on, Marco. <laughs> uh, so there's some politics happening there. And we'll have some new people in the Commons next week, Laura. Yeah. We just don't know who. <laughs> Exactly. And I think, uh, you know, the two by-elections will be uh, the source of much recriminations as the days go on. But we have voters going to the polls tomorrow in Tamworth. Uh, and there was a question uh, from the Labour MP, Karen Smith, uh, about whether or not Rishi Sunak would support uh, the remarks of the Conservative candidate there uh, regarding uh, benefits and the sympathy that he uh, that he has for them. He obviously, uh, in an expletive-filled uh, remark, uh, didn't seem to have uh, a huge amount of sympathy for anybody who pays for a TV and other such things in this uh, diagram. So listen to what Rishi Sunak uh, says here, which is quite similar, by the way, to what the Minister uh, Andrew Griffith said uh, on Times Radio this morning in support of him. Thank you, Mr Speaker. In Bristol South, around a third of children live in poverty, most of them in working households. It's about the same as in Tamworth, where the Conservative candidate for tomorrow's election made foul-mouthed comments about families struggling to make ends meet. This is his Conservative Party. Will he condemn that candidate's comments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, Mr Speaker, I'm proud of our record supporting people with a cost of living. Thanks to the actions that we've taken, we've paid half of a typical family's energy bill last winter, frozen fuel duty, boosted the national living wage to record levels, and 8 million people across this country are now receiving direct cost of living payments worth £900. Whilst we're helping people with a cost of living, all Labour's ideas are doing are costing them a fortune. Yeah, we'd probably expect a bit more knockabout on that in a, in a more normal uh, PMQ's week. But yes, yeah, the allegation the Conservative candidate, Andrew Cooper, had posted something online. It's a sort of complicated flowchart thing, but basically suggested people on benefits uh, who'd got lots of children and a big telly should F off. Was essentially the, the... Yeah, and his response to the Daily Mirror who first reported uh, the story was that most people in Tamworth would agree that benefits are not there to pay for luxuries. So there yeah. was no kind of sense of contrition for those remarks. No. There was actually just the kind of a reiteration of the sentiment. Yeah. So uh, just a reminder, all the candidates in uh, the by-election in Tamworth tomorrow, they are Robert Billcliffe for UKIP, Andrew Cooper for the Conservatives, Ian Cooper for Reform UK, Sarah Edwards for Labour, uh, the uh, monster-raving loony party's candidate uh, is standing there as well. Sue Howarth for the Green Party, uh, Peter Longman for the Independent, Ashley Simon for Britain First, and Simon uh, Verk for the Who's Liberal Democrats. Who's the raving loony candidate? I was just, we didn't the, get their The name. list that I was uh, just looking at, uh, I thought was complete, and then it turned out it wasn't. Uh, the monster-raving loony candidate, oh, it is Howling Lord Hope. Oh, good, are. excellent. He's still with us. Yeah. In fact, he lives near me. Does it? Yes. Oh, I don't want to, without giving too much away, he doesn't live in Tamworth. We won't be able to discuss the by-elections tomorrow for broadcasting rules reasons, but we'll have all the reaction and the fallout to uh, both Tamworth and Bedfordshire on the show on Friday. Lovely to see you both. Thanks for that. Uh, Lara, what time can you people get PMQs unpacked in the inboxes? 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Lovely to see you, Tim. Tim Shipman, uh, Chief Political Commentator of the Sunday Times, rounding off PMQs Unpacked here on Times Radio. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you are a Times subscriber, you can now get bonus episodes too. Just link your Times subscription to your Apple subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcast for all the details. But for now, for me, Matt Johnny, it is goodbye. Goodbye. 